Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to today's History Hack. We've got a returning guest today, haven't we, Chris? Yeah, we have. We've got uh, Simon Seabag Montefiore, who is a historian, television presenter and author of popular history books and novels, including Stalin, The Court of the Red Tsar and Jerusalem, The Biography. And he's been on before to talk about the Romanovs, 1613 to 1918. But he's here today to talk about his new book, The World. Simon, welcome to History Hack and how are you doing? Great to be here, as always. It's great to be back. Um, really nice to talk to you guys. This is number three, I think, because we did your letters book as well, didn't we? We did, um, but we can we can never do too much. We we can't. And I mean, this just uh, this just I think destroys every book you've ever written in terms of scope and stuff. I, it's fair to say it's ambitious. Uh, it's not just a history of humanity, is it? But it's how humanity is all linked together as one family. What on earth made you want to take on like such a dramatic and challenging approach to a book? Well, I've always wanted to do it um, mm-hmm. since I was much younger. And I just wanted to find a way to make to make it work. And um, because I in my Jerusalem book, I, I used families to tell the history of Jerusalem, which is a sort of history of the world in a way, in a very focused way. Um, I suddenly thought well, I could do the same for the world altogether. And I wondered if it would work. So I made this huge kind of map that for all, of all families that I wanted to cover and how they were all linked together and how, um, and how they crisscrossed each other. And I realized that I could do it in a single narrative. Um, you know, including, even including the Americas and Australia, which are, which are left out of, um, much of Euro African Asian history, which is all linked together. And, and, and strangely, I mean, strangely, it has worked. I mean, obviously I had, I, it was a, it was a sort of terrifying um, experience writing it and seeing how it would hang together. But, but somehow it has. And I think it's because families, we're, we're fascinated with families 
Um, and the idea is really through families to catch the scope and span of world history, but recapture the intimacy, the grit, the juice of biography. How do you even start picking what goes in and uh, what gets left out? Um, that's, a, that's a very good question. <laughs> I mean, it was it's very hard to decide what went in and what went out. Mm. Um, but obviously, I mean, really important things have to go in. And there's all sorts of, I mean, there's obviously there's all sorts of technological things about you know, the development of medicine and fertilizer and um, uh, the, the discovery of bacteria and all sorts of things like that that are hugely important and have to go in. Uh, and, and the Industrial Revolution, um, migrations, pandemics. And so the, 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 the choice of the families are often, um, are often decided by how they, how, how, if they're useful to tether those things too. Because what, what effectively I've done in this book is to use very personal stories about families to tether, um, really more serious, deeper, wider themes. And so that's often what makes me decide which to leave it, which to put in and which to leave out. Of course, not everything can go in. But one of the one of the decisions that I I made was to treat African, Asian, South American families, um, some of them royal, some of them ruling families, exactly as I would treat the Habsburgs or the Romanovs or European or North American families. And I think that gives it a, it gives it a diversity that's quite unusual. I think it really does. Um, and one of the things you have to explain to people how you start the book, because I love what you chose to do with it. So how far back do you go and, and tell everybody about the, the family that you used first? Um, well, there are, it starts off with two families. One is just the footsteps at Habsburg, Habsburg Beach in Norfolk. The, the first footsteps of a, of a family 950,000 years ago on the beach which symbolizes the mission of the book, really, because women are so often left out of history and, and so are children. Um, so, so that's one of the missions of the book. But the book really opens, um, 4,000 years ago in about 2300 BC in Akkad in, in what's now Iraq, um, with the family of Sargon and his daughter, um, Enheduanna, who was really fascinating character that you know she was like she was a prominent woman she was um she was a princess she was the daughter of of, of the of an emperor she was the high priestess of of a goddess and ran a huge temple and many estates she was also the an an authoress a poetess and she was also probably the first victim of sexual abuse that we know of in history so on so many levels mm. she is a kind of brilliant person to start with in some ways, a kind of modern figure from 4,000 years ago and a great way to introduce the concept of the book. You cover quite a few famous people in the book from many different fields. Are you afraid you've left anyone out or um, have you sort of, since it's been published, woken up in the middle of the night and go, oh, damn it, I forgot so-and-so? I had many I had many nights like that. That's a really good question. <laughs> I had many nights like that in the writing of the book um, because, in, in a, it, because I wanted to make make it um make the narrative really fresh and not always follow um the traditional conventional path it meant that sometimes i left people out and i do remember waking up one morning uh, one night at about four in the morning and suddenly thinking oh my god i've left jesus christ out of the book and um <laughs> and um 
And, you know, so, so yeah, I mean, and there are people that I'd like to put more in about. There are lots of people. I mean, Marshall Pilsudski, for example, um, who I know you're interested in, um, Alex, is, you know, he's in, <laughs> the, he's in the book. Isn't it? <laughs> he's in the book. But I'd like to put more, I'd like to put more, and I might in the next edition manage to sort of put a few more, a bit more about him because he's such an interesting character. So there are kind of, yeah, there are people that I'd love to put more, more in about. But actually, I think the balance is just about right. I, I think I really like the stories of people that I hadn't heard of. Um, and you've already mentioned women. So if it's OK, we're just going to delve into a couple more of the women as well, of the people that like wouldn't be if I think if you were going to list your top 50 people in the history of humanity that you had to mention, these two ladies wouldn't be in it. So we should hear more about them. So can you tell us about Zenobia? Oh, well, Zenobia is a really fascinating character. Um, she comes from Palmyra. She's, mm. she's in fact, um, most probably Arab by descent, I mean, totally Arab by descent, perhaps with some Greek um, mixed in. But um, she she becomes enormously important at the Roman Empire in a massive crisis. And, um, and so her husband is killed uh, or dies somehow. And she expands, um, she expands her empire and takes control of the kingdom. And, and in a very, very short period, I mean, the whole story lasts for about not more than 10 years. Um, she, she creates her own, her own empire that, it, that extends from, from Egypt to Turkey, um, to Iraq today. And, um, so she's, you know, she's, you know, she's really a fascinating person. And, you know, one of the cases in the book of, you know, women who, who literally kind of ruled, ruled swathes of the world and that most people haven't heard of. Yeah. It's one of the, the great tragedies of written history that women like this do fall through the cracks and that people don't hear about them. Yeah. That's right. I mean, there are a lot of others in there. I mean, for example, you know, in the, in the Mongol empire, which one of the mega families in the book, there are various mega families. I think mm. the two big ones are the, the, the family of Muhammad the prophet, who then went on to rule uh, much of swathes of Eurasia, and and then the the Genghis Khan Tamerlane, um, which I treat as sort of one family, which for a thousand, in almost a thousand years rules huge parts of um of of Asia, including including India, of course, the Mughal dynasty, but but in 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 the Mug in the um, Mongol empire you know women were hugely important and um Saul Kukhtani was 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 probably the most powerful of them who dominated the Mongol empire at its extent at its greatest extent for some decades so you know there's a character that we should all know about and then of course there are a lot of Ottoman um women uh who like like um Hossam for example in the 17th century you know when in Britain we're all reading about James the first and uh, Charles I and Cromwell. She, for all those reigns, she was a, one of the dominant characters, or the dominant character in the vast Ottoman Empire, and yet we've never heard of her. So, one of the things that's been fun to do is to correct that in the book. Another of these women is Lady Murasaki. Who, who is she? Well, Lady Murasaki is, is is another just gripping person. Um, she's she's you know in the in, the, in Middle Age in medieval Japan. Um, she she was the first, really the first published novelist. And, um, and her novel and her, 
um, and her um, and her diaries, which by the way are published in Penguin, so anyone can read them in, in a beautiful translation. Um, you know, just show um, the delicacy, the and the brutality of Japanese of the Japanese court. She was a companion to the empress to several empresses. She was um, possibly a lover to the shogun, or certainly. Um, he flirted with her, um, and um, but her great achievement is is literary, and she's she's someone we should all know about. We should all celebrate. And I've used a lot of the diary and the and, the, and I quoted from the novel, but especially the diary in in the book. So I like always, whenever possible, to use the actual words of the people in the book. And so even though this is a this, this is a work of synthesis, of course. There's lots of primary sources in here, and you can hear the, the, the voice of Lady Murasaki. By the way, that was her nickname. It means Lady Wisteria, but <laughs> we, it said a lot about Japan at that time that we actually don't know her real name, and yet, um, and yet she's this, this titanic historic and literary figure. That's amazing. You already mentioned overarching themes of this book. You can't write a book like this without talking about really human traits, like good and bad, I guess, like war. Um, one that really stuck out for me when I was looking through the book was migration, because I think it's so fundamental to your, like, your concept, um, to trace humanity. How did you manage to, I just, how would you even start mapping it to be able to get that thread going throughout the book? Well, you're so right, um, Alex. You've really put your finger on it. Migration is probably the most important part of the book. Um, if you, in terms of themes, if you combine that with religion and also, you know, technology, the development of technology that, um, that, that it plots. But migration is so important. I mean, there are just no pure races. There are no, the, the sort of idea of races and nations is, is, is somewhat contrived and really, all nations are at some point created by the mixing of peoples, and that most of that happened through either in, either invasions or migrations. Mm. I mean, invasions are usually men, armed men, landing somewhere or galloping into into into, into new territory. Migrations are include families and include men and men, women, and children. So, right in thinking that the first big one would be people coming out of the African Rift Valley, wouldn't it? Yeah. Those were massive those were massive uh, migrations that really mm -hmm. formed Homo sapiens. But more than that's the very beginning of the book. But more yeah. than that, um uh you know there were there have been massive migrations in Africa in the in the nineteenth century. I mean the whole fort the Mufakani, which was this which was which means the sort of um the crushing, the explosion, the um uh, it's translated in various ways, but that, that was, that was in, in an armed migration of peoples. Um, the Zulus are normally blamed for it, but actually I look at, I look at Southern Africa in a much bigger way. That's one of the great things about world history. Mm. And you can see how Central and Southern Africa were formed by this, um, this massive movement of peoples. Uh, some of them, some of them fighting the Zulus, some of them the Zulus, conquering other peoples, some of them avoiding the Zulus, and including and also including many, many other um, tribes and nations that were formed at that time. And so that that's into you know Africa is part of it. But then there's you know there's migrations that formed 
um, the Anglo-Saxon peoples, for example, in you know in um, you know in in early Britain, um, there are there are then the, you know, the arrival of the Normans. So Britain itself is completely formed by migrations, and and of course there's the fall of it at the same time as that was the fall of the Roman Empire, um, which which I look at differently as well because you know the migrations the migrations really had started much earlier than the official fall of the Roman Empire, which is given as a single date. In fact, the Roman Empire ceased to be just the Roman Empire much, much earlier. Yeah. So, so when you look at migrations, it's such, an, it's such an interesting way. When you look at migrations and cover them, as this book does, you realise that history is, history is much more gradual and much more complex and much more nuanced than, you, than, you, than you, we were led to believe when we sort of did it at school. Mm. If I can just say, you know, one of the things the, the, the book ends the book ends with the with the invasion of Ukraine by Putin. Yes. Yeah. So it goes right up to modern times. And it ends with a conclusion that really looks into the future um, of the next fifty or hundred years. And that's the great thing about world history. It's a sort of tonic for turbulent times. But the one thing that is certain is that migration is going to be a massive, massive um phenomenon, um world changing phenomenon in the next fifty years. Yeah, and that's one of the predictions in the book is the pressure that that will place on um, our countries like our own. Bearing in mind what we've just gone through with COVID in the uh, last couple of years, history, well, especially well. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner in nature, art, science, culture, history. We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. World history is, is full of um, pandemics and plagues. How has how's that in, affected uh, global history? And just your book. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a, um, Chris, that's a great question. I mean, the book is filled. Um, with with terrible diseases, um, it's also pervaded by a constant fear of of imminent destruction and catastrophe, which is part of human nature mm. uh, and has been always been part of human nature. Everyone ideas. thinks their generation is the one that's going to end the world, don't they? Like this they is do. worse than it's ever been. The apocalypse. So it's such yeah. a deep. It, it, that's such a fascinating thing. It's such a deeply ingrained part of human nature. I have to say that it's you know. We, we, we are, we are living in a more perilous time in terms of what humans are doing to them, doing to the world than we ever have been before. Mm. So we may have more reason to fear that we're into the world now than ever before, but it's always been an essential part of human nature. And part of it is, of course, you know, fear of disease. And so the book is filled, as you said, with, with pandemics and epidemics. Um, you know, the greatest one being the Black Death, the, the bubonic plague, um, which, which, um, which really changed the world. I mean, they are one of those super propellants, what I call super propellants. Wars can also do that, you know, achieve that, of course. But, you know, the, the, the Black Death really formed the modern world and in some ways killing massive numbers of people, reordering society, um, made possible the success of Europe. Um, in world history, which is really, which is obviously a, a massive thing. And, and so, 
yes, I mean, there are, the, the, we, we, you know, I give accounts of, um, of these, of these, um, of these events. And of course, I wrote the book on during COVID, as you said. I've got to ask as well. You go, you've taken on this challenge and the climate at the moment, if you'd have gone too Eurocentric or American centric or white centric, you'd have got battered writing this book. So you have had to put your money where your mouth is with a global history of humanity and that. How far ranging were your sources? One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Um, it's funny you should say that about, you know, yes, there's a new history now which demands that you know, it isn't just about mm. you know, white men and Europeans and isn't just about um, men at all. And yeah. is much more aware of diversity. But funny enough, you know, I, it, this suits my interests in history and this suits exactly the history that I've always wanted to write. I mean, you know, I remember, you know, I, I, I remember reading about places like Haiti and Ethiopia and Congo, you know, long ago. Um, I've always wanted to write um, a history, including those places that I read about, um, as a young person. And so, the diversity and the gen and the new sort of gender history is something that was always going to be part of this book and was was far from being sort of dragged screaming into this into writing this newly diverse global history it suited me and i've taken a delight in uh writing about these 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 um parts of the world and people and places that haven't been covered enough and not only is it i think the most diverse history um you know, I always made sure that in every case, you don't just discover about the Incas or the Mexica when a European kind of rocks up in their boat. Yeah. You know, in the book, you'll see that you always know these people decades and centuries before. And that's deliberate, of course, and makes it much more interesting. And of course, um, so that, that always suited me. And of course, the female history has always been missing, and I've always been fascinated with those characters. So as we talked about, yes, it's got people like Zenobia and Catherine the Great and maybe Murasaki, but there are others who are really obscure, like, you know, most readers probably won't know, um, like Moroxia or Kossem, you know, or, or um, Hurem Sultan, who, you know, everyone should know about and celebrate. And so it's, it's been a great delight. And there's another thing that's also important, which is it's not just about it's not just the victor's history, just about big empires that succeed. I mean, yes, it has the British and French empires and Russia and America. Um, but this is also a, a history of smaller places that you probably, most people won't have studied, like Albania, Haiti, yeah. Kauai, Cambodia, um, Congo, um, and Angola. So, so these places are all features in here massively. And that's been really fun to write. So, and obviously, you know, wherever possible, I sought primary sources. 
that are published. But I wrote this, I wrote this from my, um, from my study. And, you know, I've read, I've read massively to do it. And hopefully in most cases, this is, these are based on the later scholarship, which is important and, and wherever possible primary sources where they're available. And I've been lucky that I have to travel. I have traveled really widely and I've been to most of these places. Yeah. And so it's also based on being there and meeting and in the 20th century, um, 21st century, meeting some of the protagonists myself. And, you know, I put them in the book with their conversations with me. I just, I thought my COVID baby, which was a 400 page illustrated kids book on World War One was like, I was quite impressed with myself. But this, as you far as be. COVID babies go, <laughs> this is, this is epic. Um, <laughs> um, when you when you were writing this, who who did you absolutely not expect to be including, and who somehow ended up in the book? Oh, I mean, a lot of I'm just now I'm just really trying to think of an ex, of a name or example, but there are there are lots there are lots of those. Um, you, well, David Bowie's in there, isn't he? Like, oh yeah, you, like I mean, yeah, was that intentional from the very beginning, or were you like, no, yeah. at some point I'm going to put him in as well. He belongs in here. Yeah, I mean, I think the important, I think music, that's a very good question. That's the answer to, to, to um, Chris's um, point. I mean, you know, the people that, there were people that suddenly, um, that suddenly proved perfect. For example, you know, when you're doing families, you want to do modern and contemporary art. Mm. Um, of course, I had Freud in the book. Suddenly I realized, of course, the Freuds, you know, Lucian Freud is the ideal artist to put in, um, who developed, who about, you know, who, who, um, emerged in the 60s and um and actually so so Lucian Freud is you know featured in the book and yeah the you know the rocks the great rock stars Elton John um the Stones the Beatles are very important and I'll tell you who's an interesting character who says a lot about um the nature of the book up and cross and, and crosses worlds are Frank Sinatra and Marilyn Monroe who are both in the book <laughs> and you know they're frightfully important because they I mean they, they're, they're connected. Um, they're connected to everybody. I mean, Marilyn Monroe meets Khrushchev, so that's very useful for me. She meets. She has an affair with the Kennedy brothers. Um, she probably, well, she's friends with Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra is also friends with the mafia. Um, you know, Sam Giancana, and he and Frank Sinatra introduces Sam Giancana's girlfriend Judith Exner to Jack Kennedy. And later becomes, and is later great friends with, um, Ronald Reagan. And he's also really kind of one of the first pop singers, pop stars in the, in the age of mass consumerism, the mass consumer age, which, you know, after, after World War II and during World War II with the Bobby Soxers. So Frank Sinatra is somebody who weirdly ticks lots of boxes in this. I mean, he's like a nexus of, of politics. <laughs> Um, consumerism, music, um, popular, you know, uh, uh, you know, politics. So he's a fascinating character. So I guess Frank Sinatra or Marilyn Monroe would be surprising people that they're, that are featured in the book. But David Bowie, of course, is absolutely essential. I mean, mm. you really can't. And he, of course, links up to the first walking on the moon because Space Oddity came out at exactly that moment. And Space Oddity is such an important song in many ways. Um, and of course, there's a there's a playlist linked to this book. I've done a soundtrack to world history of all the history pop songs, which um, and I think you know David Bowie and the Stones and people like that are in it. So yeah. You uh, did you see that 
little video that went viral of Bowie the other week um, where he was talking in 1999 about the internet and all. Yes, in, I did. And Paxman is being Paxman and being quite obnoxious with him. And Bowie's like, no, shut up, fool. This is what's going to happen. It's going to yeah. redefine right. this and this and this. And he's absolutely spot on, isn't he? Well, you know, what, what you realise, I, I never met David Bowie, but I've met some of the, uh, some other kind of um, rock star characters, and they're all so intelligent. But obviously, you know, he is, Bowie was a sort of visionary character, a fascinating person, um, and he was so right on the internet. And of course, the internet is a big part of this book, um, and it goes right up to Elon Musk and um, and, you know, Bill Gates and and Zuckerberg and all these people are in it at the end. So, and of course, the internet is a massive change. And one of the big challenges that we have as a, you know, as a human race, as a civilization in, in going into the future is how to sort of, how to control it, how to live with it, how to stop it undermining, you know, democracy and so on. And also privacy. So there's so, that is a big part of it. And Bowie was, Bowie was a, was a major um, prophet of that. He really was. Um, this next question is a cheeky one. This is so it's obviously an international publication. So and it's already out in Dutch, I think, was the first translation yeah. that's been done. Do the versions differ at all? So did you have to tailor your approach, like, for instance, for the American market? Would If we were to pick up like two different versions, are they exactly the same? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I'm, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm um, correcting it all the time. I mean, because, mm. of course. There are typos. This is one of these things that's never going to be finished, is it? No, it's never going to be finished. I mean, there are more, I'm always finding typos and little mistakes, which I'm correcting, of course. So that, that's different. So the American edition will be the most up to date and the paperback will be, or have everything corrected in it, I Mm. think. And, you know, and of course, in a book like this, I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm not, um, you know, I'm, I'm responsible for any of the mistakes in the book and, I'll correct, I'll correct them as people write in and say, say like, my God, you know, there's a falling typo here or something like that. So I call some correcting things. So, but no, I mean, this is it. I mean, I mean, obviously there are parts of the world that I would like to have done more about. I mean, for yeah. example, you know, I, I really wanted to do a whole section on Madagascar because that's just the most fascinating, um, country, but you know, I just couldn't, I just couldn't justify having it in there. Um, and so it was, quite a lot less and also there's less than I'd like on Sweden yeah. which I feel very guilty about and sometimes wake up in the night you know feeling bad about that but luckily you get Charles the 12th in he's one of my favourites Charles the 12th is in yeah. and Charles the 12th is in and, and Gustavus Adolphus is, is in and Bernard, Bernadotte is in the, the, the first of this dynasty of kings but in, you know I'd like to have done more on Gustavus Adolphus and Charles the 12th but obviously, Charles XII is very important because of Russia, and Russia and Ukraine are big parts of it. And I was going to finish the book on the day that the first person died of COVID in Wuhan. Yeah. But obviously, when when Putin um, invaded Ukraine, that meant I had to write the, the end of the book, which was a bit of a crisis, um, and delayed actually delayed the sort of publication of the book by about a month, which was not good. But stuff happens, right? It does feel like this is the sort of the perfect time to release the book, though, at the moment. It, it feels, the world feels kind of broken, and it has uh, the potential, this book has the potential to be incredibly important. What do you think we can draw from the narrative that you've created? I mean, I think one of the great things um, is, you know, about world history is, 
you know, it is a medicine for tough, for tough times. It's a medicine for fear. It gives perspective. And, um, and that's one of the, that's one of the joys of world history. I mean, for just on a, on a sort of minor, very Anglo centric, on two very Anglo centric points. I mean, one is Brexit, for example. I mean, you know, I, it's no secret that I voted to remain in the European Union. Um, but I'm not one of those people who are completely hysterical about Brexit either. Mm. And I think, you know, I mean, it certainly seems like it's a very bad idea now. Um, and, um, and that may turn out to be true, but it, we're literally only about three or four years into this. And of course, in a world history, um, even though, you know, I mean, even, even its greatest opponents would admit that, you know, something could happen in the European Union in, 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 to Italy, for example, or it could be a major political crisis with Hungary and its, and its authoritarian semi-democratic government. And either of these things could, could cause a massive crisis in the European Union. And actually, amazingly, everyone could turn around and say, actually, it was just as well we weren't linked. We weren't linked. European Union at this point, but certainly at the moment it seems like a bad idea. But that's so. For example, covering that, um, I probably cover it much less less dramatically than than many people would expect. Um, yeah. I put it in its perspective. And another thing is, you know, of course today everyone is obsessed, especially in England, with the European um, with, the, with the with the British Empire and whether it's a good thing and a bad thing. Um, you know, I mean, I, this book is filled with the crimes of the British Empire and and other empires too. But I do think that we, you know, we're living in a time that's very, very strangely um, parochial and Anglo-centric. And I do think that we should look at other other countries and other empires as, as well as studying our own um, obsessionally. And I think that's one of the things the book does. But you know, you mentioned you mentioned um, we've already mentioned migration. We've already mentioned technology. Um, the other, another thing that you know we have to look at is, is nuclear power. Yeah. Another thing we have to look yeah. at is is um, the supply of food and how food, just you know, globalization of food supply, and that, how that is going to have to be changed. Now we see that we we're over dependent on foreign supply. So these are all themes that that appear. But one of them is population, and we've now reached eight billion people on Earth, and the population. Um, predictions in the next sort of 50 years are really dramatic. I mean, China is already going down. If it hasn't, if it, if it was, is about to go down, India is still increasing. Places like Indonesia are vastly increasing. And in Africa, Nigeria and Ethiopia um, and Egypt are going to massively increase in their population and become giant, giant countries as the greater they are now. They, they may all become African. African Super superpowers, um, uh, but may not. And judging by the governance of these countries, um, they won't, and they, their, their governments would struggle. And that could lead to massive migration northwards to to countries like England and France. So these are some of the things that we look at. And then, of course, there's you know nuclear power. I mean, there are eight or nine nuclear powers with nuclear weapons now. There could be many more. And one of the lessons of the Ukraine war may be that, you know, if you can get nuclear power, that does give you some security. But that means that there'll be many more people with nuclear weapons. And in the end, uh, rather like the, the rifle on the wall of Chekhov's, in Chekhov's play, 
that he refers to, and I quote at the end of the book, in the end, somebody is going to use one of these things. Um, so all of these things are things that we need to prepare for and look at um, carefully. So those are some of the themes looking forward. We haven't even touched on religion. Is Islam going to become the world's dominant religion? May well do. It may well do. I mean, I think that you know one of the features we we we, we touched on um, apocalyptic fears earlier, mm. and you know, one of the features of human nature is definitely religiosity. I think one of the ironic things that we we now in the West, I use the word West advisedly because the West now includes Japan, South Korea, places like that. So I was I I, I prefer the open world. Is what I call it. Yeah. Book. But, you know, in the open world, which is overwhelmingly secular, um, even America is still essentially secular despite a massive evangelical, um, uh, evangelical power. But we think of ourselves as second. Actually, you know, we're still, um, we still follow orthodoxies in a religious way. And you only have to look at some of the controversies we're going, we're looking at, we're seeing in society now about all sorts of orthodoxies. Um, just as people, I mean, people, I mean, just as we look, we look back at the um, Christological crises of Byzantium as if they were mad. But look at some of the cultural crises we're looking at, cultural crises we're looking at today, and and people looking back think think of them as just as crazy. I think so. So we're still living in a very religious age, and I don't think that's over. I think an, an interesting thing to say though is that because we are secular, we we don't know how to handle religious societies so for example with the iran revolution that's going on right now i mean iran is a huge part of this book persia and iran uh, i follow in great detail i'm obsessed with yep. that iranian yep. history um and you know when you you know you look at what's happening in iran today this is a sort of really vicious dictatorship um ruled by only two dictators for the last 50 years effectively and um and yet the sort of Western media is extremely kind of nervous about how to, to characterize it. They virtually never call um, Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei a dictator. Iranians do. They're chanting death to dictator every day in the streets and being shot for it. But you never see that, that commented on by the BBC. And I think that's partly because we're, we're, we're awestruck and slightly frightened of, of, of religious feeling. Just finally, before we go, Chris, you'll be really disappointed. I've had a look in the index and Princess Victoria Louise does not get a mention. <laughs> Kaiser Wilhelm gets quite a few mentions, but I think, Simon, um, before you shoot off after this interview, Chris might want to make a case for uh, his favourite <laughs> historical character. <laughs> I'm happy for I'm happy for him to do that. Um, I'm sure everyone's looking at it and say, you know, I'm sure everyone is looking at it and finding that there's certain people that aren't in it. And there are less of the British royal family um, than you might expect. Yeah. Um, but that's yeah. just because that's just because you know um, it really follows um, it follows much less on British history than we're used to. I mean, Queen Victoria is in it, but much less important too than when I think she's a much less important figure really than than she's given than she's usually. I think she's usually given a lot more credit. As a, as a powerful person than, than actually is justified by the history. And there's less Tudors too. There's much oh, less good. Tudors in here than you Yeah, we're, we're fed up with the Tudors on History Hat. Yeah, they get too much, too much attention. I agree. I agree.
I do predict, though, that the next five years of your life, at least, is going to be people coming up to you and going, well, you didn't say anything about this person and you didn't say anything about that person. Um, and you having to uh, politely right. smile and nod um, and explain <laughs> that it's already like, I'm, I'm guessing, is it is it nigh on half a million words? Are we getting yeah, that? It yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. yeah. And I think I, I think it's, I've made really difficult decisions. I mean, yes, yeah. there's much less. There's, there's very little on the Tudors, which will be pleased to most a lot of people will be pleased to hear about. Um, but and there's much less about the House of Windsor than appear in most histories. Uh, I think I think Elizabeth II and Charles III only get about one mention each in the book. Um, well, I was a lot more about the Trumps and Kennedys and Roosevelts and Assads and Kims and President Xi and Putin. So I think that gives you an idea of, of the sort of emphasis in the book. But you're right. I'm going to be challenged forever more about leaving people out. <laughs> Simon, it is a tour de force. It really it redefines epic history. You could knock someone out with it. It's a big book, but it's 100% worth reading because it is not only is it comprehensive, but I think people will just be constantly surprised as they go through it as well with where you take them on your narrative journey. So congratulations. The book, Thank The you. World. A Family History is out now. Uh, we will put it in the History Hack bookshop so that people can jump on and buy it. But thank you very much for coming back on and do come back anytime to talk about any of the other books. Well, I love being on History Hack. So thank you so much. Lovely to talk to you guys. I'm Chris, nice to meet you. And um, Alex, great to see you again. So Brilliant. more soon. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.